This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us. A recently released Pew Research Center poll showed some alarming statistics about the millennial generation and Christianity. It showed that the Christian percentage of the American population has dropped to 70% from just 78% a few years ago. Big drop, and almost every major branch of Christianity has lost a significant number of members. The reason? Well, researchers say it's mainly because millennials are leaving the fold, with more than one-third of them now saying that they are unaffiliated with any faith. That's a number up 10 percentage points since 2007. But Christianity is true. There is a God. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, God incarnate, and he did rise from the dead. So we have much to do in the arena of apologetics in our own country with these many young people who have walked away from the church. And so today we're going to be discussing this issue with Dr. William Lane Craig, research professor of philosophy at Biola University and an internationally acclaimed author, speaker and apologist. He has put together a wonderful book that's intended as what he calls a trail guide for students who want to explore the truth about Christianity. It is called On Guard for Students, a thinker's guide to the Christian faith. And Dr. Craig, thanks so much for being here. It's great to have you today. Thank you, Janet. It's great to be with you. And if I might say right off the bat, those Pew statistics are not all one-sided. While they show that mainstream Protestants and Catholics have declined as a percentage of the U.S. population, the encouraging news is that evangelicals are holding their own. We are maintaining our percentage of the U.S. population and actually increasing in terms of absolute numbers. So that's very encouraging to me. I think what's happened is that those who have abandoned biblical Christianity are um, experiencing a bloodletting. Yeah, their their membership is declining. Their seminaries are closing. But those who have been uh, faithful to Orthodox Christian belief are in fact increasing. Which is good, which is great. And we have an opportunity, don't we, for those who have left those uh, unorthodox churches now to perhaps bring them back. Exactly, to expose them to genuine Christianity. Yes. What a concept. Well, this is really interesting. I'm wondering what your thoughts are, though, on this large number. It is still a large number of millennials who say, I don't want to be associated with any church or any faith at all. What do you think accounts for this trend? Well, I do think that, as I said, the mainline denominations are experiencing tremendous attrition because they've preached a sort of blasé humanism, and this just doesn't change anybody's life, and so one wouldn't feel compelled to associate with it as much. Though it has to be said again that these statistics don't wear their interpretation on their sleeve. Many of these non-affiliated actually believe in God, they pray, they just don't identify themselves as 
Baptists or Catholics or Episcopalians or Presbyterians. So one needs to get beneath the surface of these statistics. Uh, They don't wear their interpretation on the surface. Yes, that's a really important point. Now, one of the things I think that's interesting you mentioned in the book is that part of the challenge of getting people in general here in the Western world to think about God, and I think this would be true for students as well, is that we just take him for granted. Uh, How do you work in a culture, you do this every day, but how do you work in a culture largely where even the students and the millennial population just uses the name of God so casually and and doesn't even really stop to consider the claims of Christianity very thoroughly? I try to help students understand the logical consequences of atheism. I, I ask them to consider what are the implications if there is no God. And here, we don't have to speculate about this from a Christian point of view. We can look at what the atheists themselves have said about this. People like Friedrich Nietzsche, Bertrand Russell, Jean-Paul Sartre, and many contemporary atheists. And it's a very grim picture of man, the universe, and life itself. The French existentialist philosophers said that it leads ultimately to despair at the absurdity of life. And so I think we really need to help students understand the logical consequences of atheism in an effort to move them out of this sort of whatever mentality about God and help them to see that this is a question of vital, personal importance to them. Absolutely. Now, you have mentioned, and I know you and I have talked about this before, you you bring up these important values of meaning and value and purpose and these things that ought to be discussed in the context of whether or not God exists and why it matters whether or not God exists. The problem is, I have read on many occasions, atheists saying things like, I give my own life meaning. I give my own life value. It's back to that whole subjectivism that has just infiltrated our culture. How do you speak to an atheistic, especially student who might say, I don't really care if if there's any existential meaning to my life, my, my life matters to me. Yeah, what I would say is that that is inconsistent and um, ultimately illusory. It's really just saying, let's pretend that life has meaning. And that's really fooling yourself. That is the most inauthentic way to live that you could imagine. It's living in self-deception because you're pretending that the world is a certain way when it's really not. And I think it's very obvious that um, life and the universe don't acquire a meaning just because I give it one. Because what if you give it one meaning and I give it another one? Who's right? Well, I think the obvious answer is neither one. This is just all in your head. It's not really the meaning or the purpose or the significance of life in an objective sense. Have you found that this generation of students is more prone or less prone to the atheistic arguments or the new atheist arguments? I don't think they're aware of them. I think they're largely moved by emotional and moral factors, and they're really grossly underinformed about arguments and evidence for God's existence. So I find that with the average unbeliever, you can stop him dead in his tracks. If you can just list a few arguments for God's existence, a few reasons to believe in God, because his main reason for his atheism and apathy is that there's no good evidence for God's existence. And so if you're prepared to provide a little, this is quite startling, I think, to him. 
and can provoke a good conversation. Definitely. Now, what would be some of those good arguments for saying at least consider the fact that there Mm -hmm. is a God, that there is evidence for a God around us? Which different tracks would you take just as out of the starting gate? I think there are many different good arguments for God's existence. But in the book, I focus on just a few of these. First, that God is the best explanation for why anything at all exists, rather than nothing. Secondly, that God's the best explanation for the origin of the universe at a point in the finite past. Thirdly, that God is the best explanation for the extraordinary fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life. And then finally, God is the best explanation for the objectivity of moral values and duties. This presents a very powerful cumulative case for a personal creator and designer of the universe who is the paradigm and source of absolute goodness and value. Right. And now when you say it's just an interesting argument to explore and an important one to explore about the existence of the universe, why anything exists at all. So you're taking it beyond just the existence of a creator, but why do we exist and why does anything exist? What have you found to be some of the more formidable arguments they try to put forward to answer that? Well, about the only thing that the skeptic can say is, that even though things in the universe have explanations of why they exist, the universe itself is an exception to that principle. It just exists inexplicably with no reason, uh, no explanation why it exists. Hmm. And this commits what I call the taxicab fallacy, which is trying to dismiss this principle that every contingent thing has an explanation, like a taxicab when you've arrived at your chosen destination. There's absolutely no reason to think that that principle cannot and does not apply to the universe. There's nothing about the universe that would exempt it from the need for an explanation of why it exists rather than nothing. It's just big. Yeah, exactly right. We're going to come back. Dr. William Lane Craig and I discussing his book on guard for students. You're listening to Janet Mufford today. When I found out I was pregnant, I was devastated. I had no idea what to do. When a young mom faces an unplanned pregnancy, she's confused and scared. Society tells her that a baby is not a life and offers termination as the best solution. Preborn centers shine light into the darkness by offering young moms in crisis hope, love, and life and an ultrasound to meet their preborn baby. As soon as I get there, I felt welcome. They gave me the first look at my baby by providing a free ultrasound. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Will you join Preborn in helping love and support young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. 855-402-2229 or there's 
there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. My guest, Dr. William Lane Craig, research professor of philosophy at Biola University, reasonablefaith.org. His book, On Guard for Students, A Thinker's Guide to the Christian Faith. And when we were going to the break there, Dr. Craig, you were discussing this taxicab fallacy, this idea that, you know, some will say, well, okay, some things in the universe may have an explanation for why they exist, but we don't really, the universe itself is the exception. Right. And as I say, that is arbitrary and, and um, capricious because there's nothing about the universe that would make it an exception. If you found a ball in the woods, uh, you would recognize there's an explanation for why that exists rather than not. And merely making the ball bigger until, say, it becomes the size of the universe does nothing to remove the need for an explanation of its existence. Wow. Why do you think they make that exception? Is it just that they don't want to go there, that, that the bigger you get, the more you ha- probably have to allow for the existence of God or having to confront oh, that? Well, certainly there's the motivation of needing to avoid theism. Um, but I think, too, they may, without realizing it, be actually begging the question. What they may be assuming is that the universe is all there is, hmm. And so there can't be anything outside it that would explain it. Ah. But of course, that's to presuppose the truth of atheism, which is supposed to be under discussion. They're, they're begging the question or reasoning in a circle, presupposing atheism in order to uh, avoid theism. Yes. And now you use logic all the time when you're making these sorts of arguments. What have you found to be the best moral argument for the existence of God in terms of that very question that God created everything, including the universe? How do you uh, construct a moral argument along those lines? Well, here's a very simple moral argument, Janet, just three steps. Number one, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Many atheists recognize that. If there is no God, then everything is relative. But premise two is that objective moral values and duties do exist. In moral experience, we apprehend a realm of moral values and duties that press themselves upon us as objectively binding and true. We recognize that it's morally wrong to walk into a movie theater and shoot innocent people or to behead uh, innocent children uh, in the name of, of God. These are moral atrocities. And it follows, therefore, number three, that therefore God exists. So from those two simple premises, which most people would agree with, 
the existence of God follows logically. Right. And of course, our argument is that it isn't just the fact that there is a God, that there is a creator, but the Christian God is the God. So here's here's a conundrum, because you've just brought this up. The issue of beheading makes everybody think about the Islamic State and what's going on in the Middle East. For increasingly uh, a larger and larger number of people, millions of people in the Middle East, what they are doing is okay. We have people flocking from all over the world to join the Islamic State, not in the millions at this juncture, but there are a lot of people, a lot of Muslims who sign on to the idea of jihad, and that is theologically yeah. acceptable to them. So the question for the atheist or the skeptic may be, how do we figure out if it's their God or your God, even if I do accede to the premise that... That's uh, right, Janet. That the God. arguments that I've discussed thus far would be happily agreed to by a Jew, a Muslim, or a Christian. To move beyond monotheism to Christian monotheism, I believe we need to look at the historical person, Jesus of Nazareth. And my argument in the book is that when we examine the historical evidence for his radical claims, and especially for his resurrection from the dead, we have reason to believe that the God of the universe has specially and decisively revealed himself in Jesus of Nazareth. And so that it is the God revealed by Jesus who is the true God. Yes, and there are lots of pieces of evidence even outside the Bible that testify to Jesus' existence, for example, and and some of the things he did. But for the skeptic, they will say, I just don't believe the Bible. So if you present me with the Bible, which is a historical collection itself, in and of itself, but also the very word of God, they will discount it because they say it's a religious text. It's already have it already has this built-in bias. Yes. Now there it's very important to try to help the unbeliever understand that one will set aside, for the sake of argument, one's conviction that this is a wholly inspired book, and say, we're going to treat this just the way historians would treat other ancient documents from uh, the ancient world, and we're going to examine them to see whether or not they are historically credible. And when you treat them in that way, like the way a historian would treat any ordinary documents of ancient history, the Gospels turn out to look like pretty reliable sources for the life and teachings of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, so that one isn't in any way appealing to Christian bias or inspiration or spirituality in order to establish um, the broad outlines of, of the case that I'm laying out for you. Now, those in other religions, again, will look to Jesus as a holy man or a prophet. Mm. How do we best make the argument that, no, he was more than a prophet, he was the very son of God that he claimed to be? Well, I think exactly through those two points that I just mentioned, his radical personal claims showed that he thought of himself as more than a mere prophet, more than a Jewish holy man. He thought of himself as divine. Um, And then his resurrection from the dead, if that occurred, is God's public vindication of those radical personal claims for which he was crucified. And so I have debated Muslim apologists about the identity of Jesus, and these arguments that I have shared stand up to the best of these Muslim apologists in showing that Jesus was more than just a holy man or, or a great prophet like Muhammad, 
but that he was in fact who he claimed to be, the divine son of God and the, the son of man to whom all worship and judgment on earth would be given. What would be the standard arguments, since you brought up the debates that you've had with Muslims, about Jesus merely being a prophet? On What do they stand on? Clearly they're standing on the Koran, but there are a lot of different people from different traditions. Right. Who will in say, order I don't to yeah. argue in a debate situation, they can't presuppose the truth of the Koran any more than I could presuppose the truth of the Bible. And so it's very strange. These Muslim apologists will appeal to modern biblical New Testament criticism to try to use their arguments, people like the Jesus Seminar, to show that Jesus never made any radical personal claims, that these were later inventions by the Christian church, and you need to just get down and dirty and, uh, and do your exegesis and show, no, no, these are not later accretions. These are authentic claims made by the historical Jesus himself. And and then they have no ground on which to deny that he made these claims. Right. Well, and you also don't take the word of a seminar that votes on scripture with bees. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> right. I mean, you can offer a critique of these people <laughs> and their skepticism by showing that a correct application of the historical criteria will show that Jesus believed himself to be the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God in a unique sense, and the Son of Man prophesied by the prophet Daniel. And you can show that without presupposing biblical inspiration or that this is the Word of God, simply on the basis of ordinary historical investigation of these records. What would you say is the strongest evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ outside of the text of Scripture? Um, I would probably say the very origin of Christianity itself. Everybody recognizes that the Christian movement came into being midway through the first century. Now, why did it arise? What caused this movement to spring into being? Everybody admits that it came into being because these earliest disciples sincerely and suddenly believed that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. But how in the world did they come up with an un-Jewish, not to say preposterous, belief like that? There's a great hole in history for any skeptical critic who fails to postulate the explanation given by the disciples themselves, namely that God did raise Jesus from the dead. So I think the very origins of the disciples' belief in Jesus is a powerful argument for the historicity of his resurrection. That's awesome. I I like that. That's a really important thing to mention. As for students themselves, and that's whom you're addressing in your book, On Guard for Students, giving all of this evidence for Christianity, what have you found to be any different? I don't know if there is any difference really with this generation, the previous generations. A lot of the questions just keep coming Mm -hmm. up again and again and again. Sure. But is there one particular aspect of Christian theology or, or evidence for Christianity with which this generation may struggle more than previous ones? I do think so, Janet, and I think it's the issue of religious pluralism. That is to say, they find the idea that there can be only one way to God to be deeply offensive and morally repugnant. They have been taught to believe in religious relativism, that there are many ways to God, that it's a matter of personal taste, and you sort of choose your own religion, and it's true for you, and that's enough for them. And so the idea that Christ is the only way of salvation is, I think, deeply troubling and repugnant to students today. And that's why I close the book with a strong defense of the uniqueness of 
Christ and his being the only way of salvation. Well, it's funny, the same students probably would, you know, find themselves if they were on an airplane in a thunderstorm and the air traffic controllers were saying, this is the way to get back to the airport. They probably wouldn't be saying, no, there are hundreds of ways into the yeah, airport. Just pick yeah. one. And and this is a much more serious is, uh, eternal life and death is at stake yeah. here. I think that this is a vestige of the scientific naturalism of the 20th century, which said that science gives us the facts about the world, but religion and ethics are just matters of personal taste, like having a taste for chocolate rather than vanilla. And so part of the challenge for us as Christians is to help people understand that religion is a question of fact. It's a matter of fact, not of taste. It's like getting back to the airport safe in the thunderstorm. Absolutely. Well, a wonderful book, On Guard for Students, ReasonableFaith.org, Dr. William Lane Craig's website, wonderful work. You do such great work. Thanks so much, Dr. Craig. Thank you, Janet. Great to have been with you. Thanks again. We'll be back right after this. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Well, 1 John 2.15 tells us, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And yet, we're also told in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So, how can we both love the world, as God does, and also not love the world? How can we be in the world, but not of the world? It is one of the classic struggles of the Christian life. And to navigate the waters, my next guest says, we need the Word of God as our map and the Spirit of Christ as our compass. Very well said. So joining me now is Jeremy Walker, who is pastor of Mainbower Baptist Church in Crawley, England. And we're going to be talking about his new book, wonderful book. It's called Passing Through Pilgrim Life in the Wilderness. And Pastor Walker, great to welcome you today. Thank you, Janet. It's great to be with you again. Thank you so much. Great to have you. You know, this kind of reminded me of the old song, This World is Not My Home. I'm just a passing through. Yep. Uh, uh, not, not a deliberate uh, reference, but yes, very much the same sort of spirit. Yes, it is. What do you make of that sentiment when, when Christians will say, well, the world is not my home. I'm just here for a time, but my home really isn't here because it, it's kind of a contradiction. We're here to live as Christ, to die as gain, but we're here now and yet we're going to heaven. What about the world not being our home? Well, you can, you can sing those words in the wrong spirit as well as in the right spirit. If, if somebody basically uses that for a fatalistic shrug, hey, you know, this isn't, this isn't all there is. Why bother? Uh, let's not get too worried about things. It's all going to get better in the future. I'd want to say, hang on a minute. Have you really thought this through? <laughs> but if someone is saying, listen, as I go through this life, I recognize that this is the world that is passing away, and I want to honor God here, recognizing uh, that the, the things which are to come are the things which are eternal, 
and those are the things in which I'm truly investing, then I'd say a hearty amen or amen if I'm in America. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So we are in the world. We are to care and love for a fallen world, for not only creation around us, but also for the people in the world who Mm -hmm. will all go to heaven or go to hell. And we have a great commission to fulfill. And you mentioned John 17, which I think is an excellent passage to look at when you're examining this subject. The Lord Jesus talking a lot about this and identifying himself as the paradigm for our relationship to the world. What do we gather from John 17, would you say, to help us? Well, as the Lord Jesus is praying, he's uh, praying amongst others for his disciples and those who follow on after them. And perhaps the key text there is that the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your your truth. Your word is truth. And then, as he's been sent, he sends them. So, here, as so often, we need to make sure we understand what the Lord means when he uses the word world. Uh, At this point, he's really talking about the world considered as the... Uh, the enemies of God ranged against him. That's not the only way the word can be used. But he's he's saying, listen, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. Um, my my rule is related primarily at this point with regard to the world which is to come. I've come into this world to save my people. Not that he's not ruling over and and sovereign in this present world, but he's saying my people belong to me. They're part of my kingdom. And they should live as such while they're passing through this passing world. Exactly. So when we look at other passages, such as Hebrews 11, the Faith Hall of Fame is a lot mentioned. There are references here to those who died in faith who are strangers and exiles on the earth. And we see a lot of these sorts of references in Scripture to us being pilgrims, as you say. What does that essentially mean when we're really trying to understand it, biblically speaking? Well, I was going to say that this, this motif of the pilgrim uh, on a pilgrimage is, is one that I think is too often neglected in the modern church. And it is this notion of one whose home is elsewhere, that we are, we are traveling, uh, that that doesn't mean a, a disregard for or neglect of uh, the journey itself. Even the way in which we journey reflects our ultimate identity and destination, but that the world is not our home. Uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't look at a, a business traveler, say, in a hotel room and say, hey, that, that man, that woman is settling down. They're making that their home. <laughs> no, that's a, a temporary residence until they reach the place at which they're really aiming, where their, their investments and their hopes and their, their expectations and, and ultimately their treasure is stored up. Right. That's a really good analogy to use. I I also want to touch on something that you mentioned in the book early on, and that is some of the flawed ways that we deal with the world. And Mm -hmm. uh, we're talking about a lot of these, uh, especially the isolation option right now here in the States because of the so-called same-sex marriage decision. Well, are we really, you know, do we uh, uh, use the Benedict option? I think some people have called it. Or do we go into a sort of a monastic mindset? Okay, just let America fall. We'll just, you know, hunker down and hide in our houses and hope for the best. What do you say to the isolation option of dealing with the world? I would say that uh, to do that is to fail in one of the key privileges and duties of the Christian church and the individual saint, uh, the command of Christ, that that our light is to shine before men to the glory of God, that we are to be salt um, and light 
but the problem there is that uh, well, even the Apostle Paul says, you know, when, when I tell you not to keep company with the wicked, if you're not going to keep company with the wicked people of the world, you've got to somehow retreat away from the world and isolate yourself entirely. Hmm. To do that is to lose our capacity to truly witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, which we need to do without compromise. Right. That's a great answer. And what of inattention? This is another thing that sometimes people will say, I'm just going to ignore the world. I hope, hope it'll go away. I'm going to sit home and read my Bible and maybe it'll all just kind of disappear around me and I won't have to deal with it. Yeah, and that can be either, honestly, I just don't care, let them get on with it, or it doesn't make much difference to me, or I can't do anything about that anyway. Uh, but again, that, uh, that misses out on the call to holy engagement. Uh, one of the points I make in the book is that we need to, to cultivate a simultaneous holy engagement and holy separation. Okay. And that this, this inattention, this carelessness, this disregard really is not godlike it's not christlike you don't find that in the heart of our savior he never shrugs and passes by absolutely right now we have another problem which is emulating the world and in some circles there is a lot of concern about this the fact that even the church sometimes has compromised with the world made peace with it in some respects and has become actually pretty worldly um mm -hmm. what, what are your concerns in that regard well the old the old phrase perhaps is a sort of in it to win it mentality and even those who would say we're not interested in that, we can drift toward that where we effectively become uh, not righteously pragmatic in, in the best sense, but we, we adopt the world's ways of thinking. We, we fall into the trap of believing that in order to attract or affect the world, the more like the world the church is, the more attractive and effective we will be to and in the world. Whereas actually, I think there's a, a strong scriptural argument, and it's borne out from history, uh, and that the best teachers, uh, even in the last uh, few decades, who would say that in order to be attractive and effective, we need to be distinctively godly, and that means unlike the world around us. That's what sets us apart in the best sense, and uh, demonstrates the beauty and the majesty of the God whom we serve. Right. So if you are concerned, for example, about worldliness in your own life, do I really love the world? Have I become a friend of the world or am I justifying my friendship with the world in order to fulfill some ministry duty and I'm fooling myself? How would you discern whether or not you're being worldly? Well, uh, th that, that distinction is often put quite starkly in the scriptures. Friendship with the world is, is enmity with God. Right. Uh, and the, I think the tests have to do with uh, our heart desires, our attractions, uh, the things in which we indulge, uh, the motives that lie behind things. There's a great danger that we will dress up our worldliness in, in holy motives. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm only indulging this particular sin of the flesh, for want of a better phrase, and, and there may not be a better one, but I'm, 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 I'm doing this. I'm going to this place. I'm, I'm hanging out with these people. I'm, I'm performing this activity because this is the way that I get close to people. Oh, my goodness. We're going to go to a very quick break. Jeremy Walker with us talking about passing through. We'll be right back.
Hi, this is Kirk Cameron, and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to help moms choose life. Actor Kirk Cameron supports Preborn. My four oldest children were adopted. That is because of caring and compassionate people who help those young mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child and her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life, I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have my four adopted children, and the two natural born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of people that are involved with ministries like Preborn. Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Mefford today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Pregnancies. A gift of $22 will provide one ultrasound, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved, and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now, here's Janet. We are strangers and exiles. In fact, we are pilgrims. We are in the world. We are not of it. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. We have to struggle with this question of being in the world and being lights of the world, as Jesus commanded us to be, winning people to Christ, preaching the gospel, disciples, making disciples, as Jesus told us in Matthew 28. And yet this is a very difficult struggle for many of us. What does it really mean to be worldly or to be having a friendship with the world as opposed to reaching it with another kingdom? And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pastor Jeremy Walker is my guest. We're talking about his book called Passing Through pilgrim life in the wilderness. And we were talking a little bit before we went to the break about this issue of worldliness. And I think, you know, you really touched on an important aspect of this, which is, you know, your actions and your thoughts. There really needs to be an examination by the word of God, I would think, in order to really discern those things. Absolutely. One of the dangers is that uh, we, we use a phrase like, you know, let's, don't judge, don't judge lest you be judged. And we use that actually to suspend all judgment um, and, and to almost ignore the whole principle that our Lord gives us, that you're going to know the, the, the tree by its fruit. Yes. We must look at speech. We must look at behavior. We must look at the companions that we choose, the words that come out of our mouth, because that's what reveals the heart. And, and it's those things that we can legitimately, appropriately, and righteously say that's indicative of where our heart is. 
because our heart will be where our treasure is. And if all our investments, hopes, expectations and connections are in the passing world, that's, that's a terrible indication. Yes, it is. Now, there's another aspect of this, and that is analyzing, as you talk about understanding the environment. And one of the things that you mentioned, this is key from John chapter 15, is the fact that if you are a Christian, the world will hate you. Jesus said this very, very clearly, that we would be hated. John 17 also makes reference there. So how should we understand what it means to be hated by the world and also to understand why is it that the world automatically hates us? Yeah, this is, I think, a challenge for us because we are, all of us in some measure, going to be affected by the fear of man. We, we, want, we want the favor, we want the applause, we want the friendship of people. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, you know, people are going to be sniping at us literally every time we walk out of the door, that they'll necessarily spit at us, especially in our environment in the modern West. But it does mean that there's this ingrained opposition. It's, it's a spiritual antagonism that comes from the fact that, referring back to John 17 that we, we mentioned earlier, our union with Christ, which produces or should produce an increasing Christ-likeness, sets us apart from the world. Right. And then where, the, where that Christ-likeness becomes evident and is manifest, then it's going to stir up this spiritual antagonism that's going to show itself in any number of different ways. Well said. And, and I think that one of the difficulties for a lot of Christians is just being human and saying, I don't like being disliked. <laughs> I just, yeah, true. <laughs> I, yeah, I just don't want to be hated. What did I ever do to you? And, and maybe there needs to be more emphasis in churches on the fact that this is normal. And perhaps we as Western Christians have more difficulty with this because in other parts of the world, they're used to it. They're used to their government hating them and persecuting them and putting them through all sorts of difficulties. Maybe, I mean, do you think this is something that Western Christians really have a harder time with? I think that because of the, the impact of Christian teaching in the Western society and the, the fact that we've had, I think, unusual and blessed measures of common grace in our society, measures of restraint, uh, and some of the scriptural wisdom that's, as it were, had a bearing on the way in which our society is governed uh, directly and indirectly, I, I, I fear that we might have lost sight of this, and I, I also fear that we're going to have a sharp lesson before very long mm. because we, we are those of whom it was said, if we want to follow Christ, we must take up our cross and follow him. And I, I think that too often we want a crossless Christianity and scripturally there really isn't such a thing. Yep, that's right. Exactly. You also mentioned that we need to know our enemy. And Ephesians 6, of course, points out that our, you know, the, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So we have a spiritual enemy, the devil, who uh, has been defeated by Christ, but still we have to contend with him. How does mm-hmm. this play into the Christian life, would you say, and how ought it to be at the forefront of our minds when we're dealing with the issue of worldliness and and being not of this world? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is to realize that one of the greatest deceptions that the, the devil has perpetrated in, in the modern West is that he's not there. Yeah, uh, right. What, what, we, what, what more effective ploy for an enemy than to persuade his enemy that he doesn't exist? Sure. So first of all, I think we need to be very clear that these spiritual realities are part of our everyday life. And again, this is not a sort of devil's under the bed thing. Um, but he has his devices, he has his, 
his ways and means of opposing us. And we need to recognize that, that there is really this, there's no neutral territory. We, we cannot be, and neither can anyone else be, whatever they may profess, suspended in some kind of gray zone. We are either for Christ and against the devil or under the devil's power and therefore aliens uh, alienated from God and against Christ. And, and that's going to involve this spiritual combat. Yes, it is. What about this issue of battle weariness? I, when I got to that section in your book, I said, I'm so glad you're talking about that because I, I think it's a normal thing for Christians to go through periods of time where they're enduring so much just in you know, living in this world and enduring attacks and, and also spiritual attacks. And they just sometimes say, Lord, just let me put my sword down for about three weeks. And of course, you can't. Obviously, you can't just opt out of the battle. But what advice would you have from the Word of God, really, about battle weariness and continuing to contend for the faith and to follow Christ, even when things become difficult? Yeah, I would say don't be surprised by it. Uh, Christ himself took his disciples aside to rest for a while. Uh, he himself took time to pray, uh, as it were, to, to re-establish and to recalibrate uh, a sense of these realities as an incarnate, uh, as the incarnate son. Uh, but, but again, it, it really comes back to our sense that time is short and we must cultivate a sense of eternity. Right. We will lay down our weapons and, and, in, in, in the great scheme of things, it won't be very far away. But until then, this, this world is a world in which we fight. And, and so I think there's an element of realism. There, there are, there's certainly a teaching of respite and, and encouragement. But again, it's within the congregation, it's within the local church that this uh, intensity and the equipment and the, the fellowship all of those sorts of investments are made to help us keep up the pace and, and, and keep the armor strapped on tight. Mm, very good. And again, going back to your assertion about Jesus being the paradigm for our relationship with the world, Christ is the one who said, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Absolutely. And, and he's the one who also told us through the writer of the Hebrews, you, know, you look to me. Yes. I, I've, I've run this race before. Yes, and I've overcome uh, the world. <laughs> absolutely. You know, yeah, I, all of those things, ultimately, it is, it is the looking to and waiting for Christ that will be uh, our, our motives, give us our motives, uh, provide us with the strength that we need for these things. That's for sure. Now, when Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world, how do you believe that can encourage us as we're running the race and fixing our eyes on Christ? Uh, first of all, it stops us becoming discouraged when we don't see this world uh, being particularly Christian. Uh, we shouldn't expect it to be. Um, I, I think it helps us, again, the realism of, of knowing who we are and what we are about. But it also teaches us to look forward with real expectancy to the, the kingdom which is coming. You know, this kingdom of grace which we enjoy now, uh, it's, it's the kingdom of God, uh, as it were, in the bud. But the kingdom of glory is, is grace in the bloom. Uh, the, the best life is not now. And if it is, oh, what misery. Yes. The best life is that which is to come. And that's what we're aiming for. Yes, I've heard it said, if this is your best life now, then that can only mean you're going to hell. And that's, yes. I mean, that's the truth. If you are a Christian, no matter what your life is like, you know what your life will be like. And in the midst of this world, we need to obey Christ and continue to rest in him. As you've mentioned, too, 
falling back on our union and our communion with the Lord Jesus. It is the only way to fight this battle. And such a great book. It is called Passing Through Pilgrim Life in the Wilderness. And joining me has been Pastor Jeremy Walker. It was just so wonderful to have you here, Pastor Walker. I so appreciate what you have to write. And it was just a great joy to have you. It's been a delight, Janet. Thank you ever so much for having me on, and I hope the book will prove useful to many others as well. Oh, I know it will. I know it will. Thank you again, Pastor Jeremy Walker, and thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you and hope you will be able to tune in again. We thank you for being here. Our website is JanetMefford.com. God bless.